building up an emergency fund to ensure you are protected against any financial surprises is one of the golden rules of personal finance. But once that emergency fund has hit its target of about three to six months of your monthly expenses, what should you do with the rest? While many choose to invest their money to grow their net worth over time, others prefer to sit on their savings, storing it in bank accounts or worse, under the mattress. So what causes some people to fear the world of investing? And how can they break that fear and start making their money work for them? Welcome to Pocketful of Durham's. I'm Alice Hayne, and joining me today is Sam Instone, director of the financial advisory firm AES International, who will outline how to get started in the world of investing. Before we start, make sure to subscribe to Pocketful of Durham's to receive the latest episodes. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks very much for having me. Now, I invited you on because a number of people have contacted me in recent weeks, and they've been asking for financial advice. And one thing struck me about all of them, they were intelligent, these are intelligent, hardworking people, and they all choose to keep their money in the bank than to invest it. And sometimes it seems to be that they're actually frightened of investing, they're frightened of perhaps losing lots of money, but other times it, it centers around not knowing where to start what to invest in. Why do you think people are fearful about investing money? I love this question, Alison. I think I'm going to begin with the words of Morgan Housel. Doing well with money isn't necessarily about what you know, it's about how you behave. And behavior is hard to teach, even to really smart people. Investing, personal finance and business decisions are typically taught to us in schools as maths or economics. But in the real world, we don't make financial decisions on spreadsheets. Instead, they get made at the dinner table or in meeting rooms where personal history and your unique view of the world, ego, pride, marketing, and the strange incentives scrambled together are how we make them. And we believe things we shouldn't believe. We follow gurus that we shouldn't. We trust the wrong people. Often, those we play golf with and react to what we hear on the radio. And ultimately, we become the sum of all the experiences. But the reality is that we're human. So you'll be very relieved to know that it's completely normal to be fearful about investing because our brain has evolved in order to protect us. Ultimately, we have 130,000-year-old paleolithic operating system in in our brain. Money has only been around for about 5,000 years. And investment, as we think about it, is largely a medieval construction. And we have godlike technology in the palm of our hands with the iPhone. And all of this scrambles together to create a real sense of panic. So fear about investment isn't abnormal at all. It's entirely normal because ultimately we're human and we are emotional. You're you're kind of going right back to the root cause of it all there. I mean, also, I suppose if we look at the UAE in particular, they've a lot of people have read kind of horror stories about people losing thousands of money or being missold bad investments that perhaps were expensive and came with very poor returns. I mean, there's that element, but does it actually go back to maybe our childhood as well? Perhaps our parents or grandparents were the type of the people that said we should hold money in the bank. Can that cause that sort of fear? Absolutely. The evidence shows the way we think about money is indeed largely formed in childhood and early adulthood. We inherit a great deal of learning from our parents, the communities we grew up in, and the habits of those that are around us. So you're exactly right. Old adages such as money is safe in a bank really 
do matter. And this is the reason why different socioeconomic groups think about money in such different ways. For example, the son of a wealthy banker will always think about money in an entirely different way than somebody who grew up in a working class family where money is all about survival. And this is exactly the reason why financial literacy is so important, because the scripts within our money minds really do matter later on in life, because all of us, you, me, everyone, go around life anchored to a set of views about how money works that vary wildly from person to person. So it's all to do with intentionality behind how we bring our children up and how we think about money and financial literacy. So you mentioned about you know, the type of investor that people might be. They're kind of quite egotistical or something like that. And you also touched on emotions and how people handle money based on how they might be more emotional towards it because they're thinking about the next meal for their kids and somebody else who's thinking, doesn't matter if I lose that money. So do you think that when it comes to investing, worrying or anxiety around money can actually be a big deterrent and, and kind of almost lead to investment paralysis where people don't do anything at all. Absolutely. Academic researchers have identified four common attitudes towards money. Money worship, money avoidance, money vigilance and money status. And if you're worried about money, despite having a steady income or healthy retirement fund or have that paralysis, you may be money vigilant. And recognizing your own money personality, your money mind and the scripts that are running inside your brain when you make decisions and understanding the associated strengths and weaknesses is the very first step towards improving your financial health. And those who are money vigilant, whilst they believe in being frugal and that savings are important, they have both a balcony, the good things, and a basement, the not so good things about the, the way they make decisions. For example, they might be highly secretive or defensive about their beliefs, believing money's best place in the bank, and uncomfortable about discussing their own feelings and experiences with, with money. And the best possible course of action for this mindset tends to be to talk to as many people as you can. If you're uncomfortable about talking about money, try joining online communities and learning whilst avoiding what we now term influencers or market gurus and realize that people who make different financial decisions from you aren't actually crazy. No one's crazy when it comes to money. We just all have these different scripts or money minds playing inside our decision-making process. You're a financial professional. So what would you, how would you encourage someone to think perhaps outside their personality type? If somebody is naturally cautious and feels the safest option for their money is, is to keep it in the bank, how do you perhaps help them think outside of that? And I'm not sure I would help people think outside their personality type or change their thinking, but really help them develop greater self-awareness around the balconies and the basements of why they make the decisions they do. Because greater self-awareness of that money mind tends to come from the quality of the questions that we can ask. For example, what's important to you about money? And this can be an uncomfortable question because very often we're not used to thinking about money in these terms. And the purpose isn't just to scratch away and think about goals, but to go much deeper and find the reason why people hold certain certain goals. And once your values are clear, decisions become easier. Knowing what drives your financial decisions ultimately helps reach smarter financial goals and finance and life and, and happiness. And so, and so as a financial professional, we try to decrease judgment on anyone's money mind, not make them think about 
outside of that, but have greater self-awareness by asking higher quality questions about what's important to them, because ultimately each life is very different. Determining and being aware of what's important to people personally will then drive all the other decisions that flow, flow from that. And that's how we tend to get much healthier balance in life. And I suppose if people simply rely on bank interest rates to grow their wealth, you know, they say, no, 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 I'm going to keep it in the bank because I've got 3% or I've got 5%, probably haven't got that at the moment. Uh, at the moment, they're probably losing out over time because interest rates are very low. So, so how do you, what do you say to people who tell you that their money is safer in the bank? Probably the best way to answer this is with a story, because I can remember once I sat in front of a very clever and successful man who diligently worked for years to build up a large pot of many millions of dollars just sitting in cash. And he was very proud of this. His first statement when discussing his future growth to me was that he didn't want any risk. And it was obvious immediately he was financially illiterate. And I'll explain why in, in just a moment. But... I nodded, sat silently and said, what you've created here is very commendable, so well done. A great job on creating such a, a nest egg, particularly because he'd paid tax on that at first. He was in the UK. And then there was a long pause. And I tried to reflect and said, in all my years of doing this job, you've created probably the riskiest portfolio I've ever seen. And there was a long silence. And I said, you've worked so hard. And now I want to think of your money as an employee of your future self. And ultimately, you've got a choice regarding how much you want your employees to earn. In fact, you've got three choices. You can either have them earn a minus 2% per year, which is exactly what cash does. You can choose number two to have plus 2% per year above inflation, which is generally what fixed income earns. That's lending money to governments or companies, and that's what that does for you. Or you could have it earn plus 5% per year after inflation, which is generally what global equities own, uh, and that's owning the great little shares and the great companies of the world. And they've provided that over multiple decades for disciplined owners. And so these are the go-to numbers for, for you, I said, it's entirely up to you, minus two, plus two, or plus five. And that's exactly what he had, had been taken. And as Warren Buffett said, risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And risk is one of those words that's so commonly quoted by the financial industry, but it has very different definitions, a little bit like love and happiness. We can love the pizza we just ate, we can love our iPhone, and we can also love our, our wives. And so I don't want any risk as a statement made by somebody who's financially illiterate, because when it comes to investing for your long-term future, for your family's future, your life savings, you're going to be dancing with risk, whether you like it or not. It's choosing what flavor of risk and there's a quantum difference between informed risk and uninformed risk. And the real risk that we all face is outliving our money. We're also going to have a 30-plus year retirement of independence and dignity, not become a burden upon our children, and to enjoy life there in our twilight years to achieve everything that we need to become financially literate. They say cash is king when, in fact, and it, it is an easily proven proven fact that cash is pauper because it doesn't maintain its purchasing power if it sits in a bank it dwindles away and that is your unrealized future slipping further from your grasp so what i would say to people with that is become informed and don't be financially illiterate at the end of this i'll talk about what you can do in a very short period of time to really understand 
uh, to make yourself more literate and really understand the difference between informed risk and uninformed risk. And I hope that story of the riskiest portfolio that I'd ever seen sat entirely in cash, dwindling that future opportunity for that smart individual away shows that there is a big difference. And once you have a good understanding and you become financially literate, it's pretty simple to understand that, but not easy to do. So to help turn that mindset around, you're saying that people should focus on educating themselves and, and learning you know, about what they need to invest in. So if you've got a nervous investor in front of you, dipping their toe in for the first time, what are the key messages that you would give to them? Alice, you'll be pleased to know that I'm sitting opposite a quote on the wall, which says, education is the most powerful weapon with which you can use to change the world by Nelson Mandela. And education, 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 because education is about knowing information in a way that it can be used to applied and, and applied to make better decisions in, in lives. I think every member of the public needs to have that capability to make good decisions about, for example, what they're going to do in life, careers, um, how to be healthier, wealthier, wiser, how to um, be more sustainable, um, how to be a good, good, good citizen, how to be their best self. And the key to that mindset is entirely down to education. And the good news is that that's something that we can control ourselves through our behavior. We, there are so many sources of information that are available now in the palm of our hand with modern technology that if we begin there, we can all make better decisions. So, I mean, I probably made my first um, investment when I was about 25, and that was something I did unwittingly. And I, I joined a company and was put into the company pension scheme. I mean, that's probably something that a lot of people do. They actually invest without realising. Absolutely. I remember early, myself early on, I invested and I made a lot of mistakes along the the, the way in my early, early 20s. So I suffered a lot of setbacks and made um, a lot of learning, had a lot of learning opportunities in order to make things things better. And I think when we do make mistakes, people also need to understand they're not crazy. They are the normal. Um, every, everybody does mistakes and it's what we learn from those in order to get better in the future that will help us on our investment journey moving forward. So I then I would say my first conscious investment was when I was about 28, when I bought a house in London. And obviously looking back, like all of us, I wish I'd started earlier. Um, and one thing I find that people keep asking me, these people that are coming to me for advice, is they're asking um, how much of my money I invest. And that's, um, that's quite a difficult question to answer because I actually probably invest most of it because I, the, all I keep aside in the bank is is what I consider to be my emergency fund. So what's the right you know, advice to give there? That's why you're the person working personal finance, Alice. I think you are doing the exact right thing. Deep down, I think most people know the answer to this. It's invest as much as you can in the right way as early as you can because somebody is sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. It's simple to say, but not at all easy to do. And we, we mustn't ever underestimate the importance of time uh, in, in things of the earlier the start and the more we invest, the better. However, we know that some of those different mindsets have very different scripts running in their, their, their minds. And so they might have been enjoying life and be right at the retirement point before they begin to think about things. And there are always options available and open to people. But deep down, most of us know it's wise to begin as early as possible in that and to invest as much as we, we can in order to benefit from the higher expected dimensions of return from capital markets, as long as we invest in the right way. So people starting now, 
what should they do? I would say they should begin with extreme caution and care, largely because they won't have to make the mistakes that I made in my early 20s. And the challenge for that is professional advisors, as opposed to self-employed product salespeople, tend to only work with wealthy individuals who have elements of complexity and can afford their fees, which means that there's a big advice gap, the mass mass market, where typically self-employed salespeople will sell a variety of products with concealed charges or commissions built, built into them. And in effect, the people within that advice gap are cannon fodder for the traditional financial service industry. And therefore, it's extremely hard to escape the gravitational pull of that wealth segment, um, everybody being pulled back into products and uh, which might might have less competitive charge of access terms. And I'd suggest the best way for most people is to simply buy a book and begin educating themselves. One of my favorites is Andrew Hallam's Expat Millionaire because it's designed for expats and it has a lot of chapters on different uh, nationalities and how they should begin, what type of things they should be aware of from uh, the traditional financial service industry, what type of platforms, what type of funds, what type of lessons they should really learn. And so I find that book, Expat Millionaire, is a really good way for people to begin improving their own self-awareness around the subject before doing anything else. So I'd recommend that as one of my top books. I'll talk about a couple of other, other places later on. We actually had Andrew Hallam on the podcast, I think it was about a year ago. So I, the listeners should probably tune into that one as well. But in terms of what you you advise your clients, I mean, AES is known for having a low-cost, uh, long-term approach to investing. So if someone asked you how to invest, what would you tell them? As I said, investing well is quite simple, but not easy. And step one would be to establish an evidence-based investment philosophy. And that really means that you should be patient, disciplined, have faith in capitalism, confidence in the capital markets and understand the volatility that is the informed and uninformed risk. Step two is to build and maintain a robust portfolio. And you can do that by avoiding high charges, managing risks over time, controlling emotions, rebalancing regularly, taking only sensible risks and diversifying broadly. Step three, is to underpin that with good governance, which has a screening for new funds, incumbent fund review processes, process improvement, looks at change in and development in financial services and portfolio review. And Bob's your uncle. Um, you mix that all together and you would have a very strong investment process. Nowadays, for people beginning their journey, they can get a lot of that done for them by buying globally diversified low-cost index funds as opposed to have professionally managed portfolios because the real difficulty is actually tailoring what now can be a commoditized investment portfolio to fit your life and to make sure that it fits into a, a life plan with clear goals and that that plan stays on track when it meets the exigencies of life with that as uh, unexpected events happening. Uh, which can be life life events or is that unexpected market events such as uh, severe market market drops, which is when it comes back into controlling people's behavior. But generally, investing itself can now be done almost on a commoditized basis by professional firms like like us and many, many, many others. It's really the planning, the goal setting, and making sure that people stay on track, which is actually quite quite hard and the, all the different elements of wealth that is information is accessible it is out there and people people can can find it you talk about 
market crashes. And that's something that people always say to me, but what happens when the market crashes and I lose all my money? And I say, well, you won't lose all your money. How do you reassure them on that score? How do you kind of explain to them that it's about a long-term approach? It really, really is. Vast amounts of Nobel Prize winning academic evidence are available now, which show that short-term volatility is the price of long-term market returns in excess of those available by cash or by fixed income. We know that over the medium and long-term equity markets provide you with the greatest expected dimensional return you can you can get. And so staying the course and controlling your emotions and being disciplined over the short-term cycles when the entire world, news, uh, radio, is blaring markets crashing. Uh, you're watching influencers on TikTok talk about gains in crypto or or different risk. Being disciplined and planting that seed, letting it grow into that tree, uh, is the absolute key to the incredible success of people like Warren Buffett, where time is his magical secret. He's been investing for such a long period of time that the compound of that really has made a a, a big big difference. But of course, people also get worried about job security a bit and being able to afford dependence. So that kind of then in their heads pushes investing down. You know, there's no point investing my money if I can't pay the bills because I've lost my job. So for those working in, in more volatile professions or certain markets that might not be as secure, I mean, what do you encourage there? Have a bigger emergency fund to kind of buffer you against those downturns? Absolutely. Personal finance is more personal than it is finance and so tailoring advice or tailoring what people are doing to individual situations absolutely key so people who work in different types of roles with different different levels of job security should have different plans to people that can expect a more arithmetic career progression over a period of time the answers are always always different for each and every single person and i think that phrase personal finance is more personal than it is finance is critical for understanding how to grow wealth well over the long term. And it's not just about investing either, is it? I mean, people also need to be aware about thinking about wills. You know, should they die, for example? You know, they've got to make sure that their dependents are cared for. They've got to think about their gratuity or how they're what they're going to do with their gratuity when they get it. They've got to think about life insurance, payouts from employers. Again, if they should die, I should stop talking about dying. But unfortunately, we have to think about these things. And they're all part of financial planning, aren't they? You're absolutely right. And in fact, protecting your existing position, uh, position is much more important than just future planning. Because if you haven't got the right foundations in built in place, then don't start building a house on top of it. So reviewing things in detail and making sure that if unexpected events happen, you do have the will or the right insurance in place or you have your emergency cash which you talked about earlier in place is is much more important than just focusing on investment further down the line it all comes from planning out of the plan comes action and so often people start at the wrong end of things and start building the house on sandy foundations so finally, what are your top three pieces of advice for someone who's nervous about investing? Someone who's coming into it now, they've kept all their money in the bank, they now want to break free and break that fear and start investing. What would you tell them to do? I'd reconfirm that the uninformed only think of risk as volatility. And becoming financial literate isn't easy. Wise counsel and good decisions is the 
critical difference in dreams that come true and shattered expectations. My parents didn't invest correctly. Their parents didn't invest correctly because they were financially illiterate, as we all are when we start out in life. But I look at that cycle stops with me. Now, information is available everywhere within the information age. And ultimately, wealth is opportunity, wealth is freedom, and your behavior will equal your success. Out there in the world is financial darkness. The traditional industry, I call it the evil empire or Voldemort. And people need to find their way to the light, to Gryffindor, to the Jedi, by understanding the difference between informed and uninformed risk and wise counsel whether you get that online from the right sources, whether you get that from books, whether you get that from professional advisors, will help steer you those myths for, for you. Finfluencers, product vendors, fortune tellers, banks, brokers, within the system, purveyors of the dark arts won't. And therefore, my single, not three bits, but my single piece of advice to anyone is to Google Andy Hart from Maven Advisor and Informed Risk. I'll just say Andy Hart, Maven Advisor, Informed Risk. And there's a 16-minute video on there because he will articulate far better than me what I've been rambling about. He's a very eloquent speaker and he'll articulate the difference between informed risk and uninformed risk. I'd echo what I said earlier with Warren Buffett, the most successful investor ever. The risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And optimistically, you, the listener, has the power to solve this and behave your way to wealth. If only we begin with education and literacy. Thank you this week to Sam Instone. If you would like advice on your personal finance issues, you can write to me on pf at thenational.ae. And remember that PF stands for personal finance. Please do subscribe to the podcast in your podcasting app to receive weekly updates and leave us a review so we know what you think. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison. I've been your host, Alice Hayne.